You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Micah, chapter 2. Micah, chapter 2. Be sure and wish Keegan a happy birthday today. His birthday is this coming Saturday. He'll be 26. He's young enough to be my kid. Notice how I said that. I didn't say I'm old enough to be his dad, right? (laughs) We appreciate Keegan so much, his leadership, our worship ministry. Thank you to our worship team, and thank you for being here. Uh, I want to tell you at the outset of this morning's message uh, that this will not be your typical Mother's Day message, okay? The title of the sermon is not Lullabies of Grace, okay? I've preached that sermon. Um, This is not... Uh, that sermon. Okay, we are in a study of the book of Micah. Uh, Before we go there, I do want to say how important it is that uh, we pray for our moms, uh, that we value uh, them and their influence in our homes and our families. And uh, we are living in a crazy, crazy time, a crazy day. Um, It's no secret uh, that there's a lot of weird stuff going on in our world today. And uh, our moms really, in many ways, are on the front lines uh, of confronting those uh, things in their homes, in their families, uh, with their kids. Uh, You are, uh, in many cases, uh, the main influencer in their lives. And so there's no way that we could possibly put into words how much we value you. Uh, And one of the things that we're looking at in the book of Micah here is that uh, he writes in a day much like ours. Uh, And so culturally speaking, uh, there's some striking similarities. And while this is an ancient text, um, it is uh, certainly applicable uh, to the day in which we live. So last Sunday, we started this new sermon series looking at the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, You probably haven't spent a ton of time in your devotional life in the book of Micah. In fact, if you're still looking for the book of Micah right now, that's okay. Uh, If you need to use the table of contents, no shame. Okay, we're not going to judge you. Uh, But he is one of the minor prophets who, again, prophesied in a day much like the day in which we live. Uh, The nation of Israel uh, was in a state of moral decay. And it was characterized by corruption and greed. It was a time when grave injustices were being committed. The family unit was disintegrating. Now remember, Micah was a country boy. Uh, He was from the small town of Moresheth in the southern part of Judah. And so he was not raised among the elites in Jerusalem, which is why a great deal of his preaching reflects a special sensitivity to the abuse of power at the expense of the vulnerable and the marginalized and the poor. Uh, Those those people were his people. Uh, And so Micah's concern, as we're discovering here, particularly in the first three chapters of the book, is that the internal, spiritual, and moral decay of the life of God's people will bring them under God's chastisement. And God will use the Assyrians to bring a terrible season of judgment Upon them. And in spite of all this, Micah was not hopeless. Maybe you're one of those who uh, watches the news today and you just find yourself almost overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness. This world is just going to pot. I mean, there's so many things 
uh, that uh, are in the news on a regular basis, and it just seems a bit overwhelming. Um, and it wouldn't have been uh, much different in Micah's day, I'm sure. And so he writes in chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so Micah's hope was based upon God's faithfulness. God is not taken by surprise. God's not perplexed by anything that is going on in our world. He was not perplexed by anything going on in Micah's world. And so his hope is found in God's faithfulness. Now, by way of review, I mentioned last week uh, that Mark Dever, a pastor in the D.C. area, Pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he uh, has written an Old Testament survey called The Message of the Old Testament. And in that, he kind of summarizes each of the Old Testament books. And uh, in that, he presents three major themes in the book of Micah that help us understand the character and nature of God. That's why we would study a text like this, because it helps us understand better who God is. God is unchanging. He's eternal. And so the things that were true in that day of God's character and God, God's nature are true today. And so these things uh, we see highlighted here in the book of Micah. Number one, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Number two, God wants his people to be restored. And number three, God wants his character to be known. And he wants it to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy, through the remembrance of his righteousness, and through the demonstration of his mercy. And so with that being kind of the foundation of uh, what we're looking at here in the book of Micah, let's look together at chapter 2. We're going to be taking this a chapter at a time. And so I'm going to cover these first three chapters, then Griff and Jace are going to get a shot at it the next couple of weeks while we're getting a little bit of time away, and then I'm going to come back and kind of wrap it up uh, with chapters 6 and 7. Now, uh, hopefully they know that I, I'm leaving the best parts for them, okay? Uh, this is not an easy message today, much like last week. I mean, this is some, uh, this is some tough plowing, Okay. And so I hope that you will engage this morning, that our minds will be alert, our hearts will be receptive as we look together at God's Word. Notice it begins with the word woe, okay? Um, this chapter, uh, th these are woe oracles, we might say. Uh, it says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Therefore, connecting us to those first two verses, because of these things, because of this oppression, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, in quotes, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up, have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go. For this is no place to rest, 
because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he should be the preacher for his people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The American dream has long been a part of our cultural narrative. But life in America today, for many people, is a nightmare of grinding poverty with little chance for change. There are startling statistics of human trafficking and modern-day slavery so hard to stomach that if we're completely honest, many of us prefer to be ignorant of those statistics. So the monstrous trade in young girls particularly goes largely unnoticed. I heard a news report some time ago, and you hear these kinds of things with, with too much frequency. Uh, a news report uh, talking about the spread of a predatory financial scam that targets the elderly in particular leaving some of the most vulnerable members of our society robbed, not only of their income, but of their dignity. And this morning, we could spend a lot of time, and we could go on and on and on, listing scenarios and illustrations of oppression and injustice on every hand. Maybe because of things like compassion fatigue, or straight-up cynicism towards people who make arguments about oppression for thinly disguised political gain. It's hard to hear the Bible's call to care for the poor without reading it somehow as a sort of social agenda covertly aligned either to the political left or the political right. Words like justice and injustice and oppression and discrimination have become kindling to start fires of political rage in recent years. I know certainly in my lifetime, I cannot remember a time when we've been more divided. And so we got words out there that people are using, and I'm many times left to think, I don't think that word means what you think it means. I think it's a real temptation for us when we hear the challenge, the call to care about the world around us, to love our neighbors, to care for the poor and the marginalized and the, the vulnerable in particular. It's easy for us to retreat to safe spaces that many times looks like a party political conviction either to affirm or decry, to denounce in even hostility or to use what we are hearing and what we find in Scripture as a stick to beat others and to win arguments rather than to hear God's Word speaking to our own hearts and consciences in humility. And so what a lot of people do today whenever they open Scripture, they come to sections like this, they immediately think, oh, this is for those people. This is for that person. This is for my political opponents. This is for the people on that side of the issue. When instead, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. There's no avoiding the fact that the prophecy of Micah here simply will not let us off the hook when it comes to the believer's responsibility to care for the marginalized. And if we're going to hear what God is saying to us here correctly, 
We need to understand while oppression and injustice were everywhere in the world that Micah occupied, the Assyrian Empire was the superpower of the day. Many of the nations surrounding Palestine in those days, they were characterized by injustice and oppression. And right now, we could make a rather lengthy list of countries and parts of the world that are characterized the same way. You're seeing the same things. But I also need you to notice this morning that that is not really Micah's concern or focus. Micah's concern is not to speak to the world at large about injustice, but is to call instead the Lord's people out of their behavior as it begins to look more like the unbelieving world than it does the citizens of the kingdom of God. The pagan Assyrians, they were oppressors. They were preying on the weak and the vulnerable, and that would have been no surprise to Micah. But here, the fact that the covenant people of God might live that way, that's a scandal that Micah could not fail to denounce. So Micah is not preaching what we might call a social gospel. He is preaching the implications instead of the true gospel for the way that we live as we seek to be good neighbors and faithful citizens in the midst of a very dark world. And we have to be willing to hear this morning in humility the voice of God speaking through the word of God, especially when what God has to say to us calls us out of our comfort zone. I want you to notice in verses 1 through 11 particularly the way that Micah characterizes First, the oppression that was everywhere in his day. And so first we see oppression described. Oppression described. This has become one of those hot-button topics, hot-button words in our day. Oppression. Who's oppressed? Who's not oppressed? Who are the oppressors? Who... Notice here that it's characterized, it's described as willful and inventive. Willful and inventive. This is not some oversight. That's not what we're talking about. You'll meet, immediately notice in verse number one that the oppression he denounces, it's, it's, like, it's imaginative. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Simply because they possessed the power to do it, there were people in Micah's community, even the people of God, who spent their time inventing new ways to prey upon the weak and the vulnerable. And when day dawned, that is, right out in the clear light of day, without shame or embarrassment, because they have the power to do it, they follow through on their wicked schemes. On their wicked schemes. You'll notice that this oppression is also characterized as economic in nature. He's talking about here what we might call ruthless, predatory business practices, driven by covetousness. They covet fields, the text says, and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house and his inheritance. Now remember, the Tenth Commandment forbids covetousness. It's the sin of greed. And it speaks not to, just to outward behavior, but to the condition of the heart, to the deep layers of inner motivation, covetousness. So it shows us that God's law is not just about what you do, but it's about what we think and about what we feel, about the layers of motive that drive our behavior and our actions. And the flip side is also true. If we are forbidden to covet what belongs to someone else, 
then the command would also positively tell us that we should practice godly contentment with the provision that God has entrusted to us. The God to whom we are to look for our daily bread, Scripture says. And so that was God's standard for his people then, just as it is his standard for his people today. But in Micah's day, the direction of the moral law was being disregarded. Instead, the powerful were preying upon the weak so that they took away their inheritance, it says here. Now, don't be confused by the word inheritance. It's an important word here in verse number two, particularly. And when we think of inheritance, many times we think of a sum of money or a list of assets that we perhaps leave to our children at the time of our death. Don't think about inheritance that way so much as you should think about it as an allotment of land assigned to a family in the promised land. It was a way of indicating that you belonged forever to the covenant people of God and the covenant promises of God could never be taken away from you. You have an inheritance in the community because you have a plot. You have land. And the lines that fall for you fall in pleasant places because of your inheritance in the land and the people of God. And because of the symbolic significance of the land of inheritance. Remember, as you study the people of Israel and their, their, their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, where were they heading? All that time they were wandering in the wilderness to the promised land. Right? And that land was divided among God's covenant people. And so because of the significance of the land of inheritance... What it meant for the people of Micah's day and generation to lose that inheritance wasn't just an economic problem. It was a spiritual catastrophe. So there really is no regard on the part of the wealthy elite for the little guy, for the welfare of the little guy, the economic, material, spiritual welfare of the little guy. It's just business, they would say. And so we see this oppression Described. I want us to notice, secondly, God's judgment detailed. Because as you continue to read here in the text, in verses 3 through 5, God speaks a word of judgment. And maybe as I was reading the text a moment ago, you, you heard those words and you're thinking, this just blew my image of God out of the water. Because, again, the language that is used here is tough. I mean, we have a picture here of a God who devises catastrophe, devises judgment. And so maybe you have that modern-day picture of God in mind. When you think of God, he's kind of a, a grandfatherly type who dotes on his, his children, and he wants to make sure that our lives are just amazing all the time, and we get all the ice cream we want and sprinkles on our cupcakes and everything. That's, that's God, right? And yet the image that we see time and time again in Scripture is that, yes, God is loving and God is gracious and he blesses us in ways we could never deserve. But we also have to know and understand that we have an incomplete picture of our God if that's all we see because God hates sin. He hates their sin. He hates my sin. God hates sin. He's holy and he's just. And the word that is used most often in Scripture to describe God is that he's holy. He's holy, like no other. And so here is what Micah is saying. When we devise what God considers evil deeds, God devises what we would consider evil consequences. That's worth repeating. 
as a general principle, as a useful warning for all of us to hear, when we devise what God considers evil deeds, God devises what we might consider evil consequences. So Micah is saying, be warned. Be warned. That's what Micah is saying. Please understand this eternal truth this morning. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. Now, you may not realize that suffering immediately. The Bible does talk about the pleasures of sin that last for a season. And so you may find yourself in the midst of something and you're, 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 you're veering off the path. And you may find, and man, there's just, I mean, trust me, when we choose to sin, we ultimately choose to suffer. And understand this, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. A lot of people view the Bible as just this big lengthy list of do's and don'ts. And every time God says don't, he's just presenting himself as some kind of a cosmic killjoy that doesn't want us to have any fun. That's not the God of the Bible. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And we mustn't forget here that he is speaking to the covenant community. Don't think for a moment that the rebukes and the discipline of God do not fall on those who devise evil just because they're not, quote, pagans. It's not like we can say, well, we're members of First Baptist Church, man, I'll stay, so we're somehow exempt. No, Micah's whole concern in these chapters is to shake those who thought themselves secure in their relationship with God. To shake them from their slumber and to make them aware that merely professing faith in the Lord while you live like the enemy of God and his people can provide no defense from his judgments, both in this life and the life to come. So before we move on, I think we need to note the extraordinary ironies in verses 4 and 5. You, you see these things uh, sprinkled throughout Micah's prophecy. We saw some last week as he used particular words to describe this judgment that was coming on these different towns in the area. So while they're busy oppressing others, they don't seem to care at all about taking away the inheritance of, uh, of other people as long as they're lining their own pockets. But when God brings the same thing upon them, they are filled with complaints against God for his injustice. So here we have these people who are oppressing others, and they, they, you see these grave injustices, but then when God judges them accordingly, choose to sin, choose to suffer, they're like, God is so unjust. God's not fair. And that's why it says in verse 4, in that day they, the oppressor, shall take up a taunt song against you and against God, and they shall moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, to an apostate. Probably talking about the Assyrians. He allots our fields. That's their complaint. They're whining that God is not treating them fairly, even though only a few verses before, in the same chapter, Micah calls them out for doing the very same thing to the weak and the vulnerable in their community. So God's conclusion... Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You will have no inheritance left to you. Those who disenfranchise the poor will themselves be disenfranchised. And yet in their entitled self-absorption, they're complaining about God taking away their inheritance. They are moaning bitterly as if God 
was the unjust one. It's extraordinary irony. And we do have to make sure that this lands with us, as uncomfortable as it may be. Because Micah, remember, is not preaching here to the faraway politicians and the decision makers in the court of the wicked Assyrian Empire. It's not a message for those people. Okay, he's not preaching to Washington, D.C. Okay, no, he's preaching to the covenant people of God. He's essentially talking to us. And he's saying to us, we must not mimic the practices of the world in the way that we use power just because we have power. Now, I realize this morning, if you're like me, you may think, I don't have any power. What are you talking about? I don't have any power. Let's think about that for a moment. I I wouldn't pretend for a moment to know all of you intimately, even uh, many of you personally. Uh, I I know many of you well. I've been here for eight years now, uh, and so I think I know you fairly well. And for the most part, I would say we're pretty well connected. And I don't say that with any sense of pride. It's just reality. For the most part, and I realize that this is not true of everyone, we are economically stable. Even in the midst of the crazy economy in which we find ourselves, we are, for the most part, culturally secure. Now, I I know that we sense that that's eroding and all of those sorts of things, but trust me, there are other parts of the world far different from where we live. So I'm not discounting the fact that there are some crazy things happening in our world, but we in many ways are cultural gatekeepers to make decisions about who gets to belong and whose face doesn't fit. And, And I know for sure that there's a real temptation along with those great blessings to make more even though you already have more because greed has gotten its claws into us. And I'm not just talking about money and material things. And so instead of accepting our relative wealth and prosperity as an undeserved kindness of God and holding it with humility, with open hands and a posture of careful generosity, the danger for us is that we get defensive and become entitled as if the worst thing that could possibly happen to us would be to lose money or power or influence. And we have forgotten Christ's exhortation. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The people of Micah's generation, they had forgotten to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so they find that all their daily necessities were provided for them also. They had forgotten that. And the question for us really must be is, have we? Have we? Have we forgotten to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to use the resources with which God has blessed us for the glory of his name? There's a third thing I want us to see in the text here, and that is preaching and practice disconnected. Preaching and practice disconnected. If there's any section of this text that hits close to home for me, it's this one. In verses 6 through 11, we see that there's this striking disconnect between preaching and practice. The connection between oppression in the community and the failures of preaching begin to become clear. And we'll see them again as we get into chapter 3 next week. Micah anticipates the reaction of his hearers, his original audience, to his... It's a pretty punchy message, wouldn't you say? And you see how they respond in verse number 6 to his preaching? Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. 
disgrace will not overtake us. And the first half of verse number seven probably continues their speech, and it really should probably be in quotation marks as well, indicating this is kind of like a, a counter sermon to the people to whom Micah first spoke. They turn now and they preach a sermon of their own. Look at what they say to God's people. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do you see what they're saying? Look, don't listen to him is kind of what they're saying. Micah doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not what God's like at all. He's patient and kind. And if there's anything to forgive, of course he'll forgive. Of course he'll overlook our indiscretion. Isn't that his job after all? If you skip down to verse 11, you get to see what Micah thinks about their preaching, the kind of preaching he thinks the community would really prefer. Verse 11 says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, it's like his way of saying, preaching a bunch of hot air, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for his people. That's his assessment of what they really want. Give us someone who will endorse our lifestyles. Tell us that the way that we party is perfectly acceptable to God. We don't want preaching that speaks to our consciences. Thank you very much. Does that sound remotely familiar to you? Isn't that why the prosperity gospel is so wildly popular today? It's easy on the ears, after all, right? The prosperity preachers are so popular because they're going to tell you what, that God wants nothing more for you than your happiness and your health and your material prosperity. It's easy on the ears. That's why the Bible says there will be those who will heap up for themselves preachers, teachers who will tickle their ears. Tickle their ears. But instead, if you look at the second half of verse number 7, you get to see God's reply to those so-called preachers or prophets. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy, he says. And here's exactly what he means. Here is how they live. Here's their oppression characterized. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Isn't it interesting that women and children are mentioned here as among the most vulnerable in Micah's day? That is still largely true today. If we're completely honest, they are still largely among the most vulnerable in our day as well. That's why James 1.27 is so important to us. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Tender concern for orphans and widows, for women and children, for the weakest and the most vulnerable. That's the mark of a child of God whose heart is changed by the grace of God in the gospel. That's what James is saying. But the predatory elites of Micah's day saw them only as easy marks and targets for their greed. And so verse number 10, there's judgment coming. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. The land of promise should be a land of rest, but not anymore. Instead, they will be taken away into exile by the Assyrian Empire. So here's Micah's point in all of that. 
here's what we're to do with this. Now, it might seem obvious to us to say it, but we need to remember that there's a vital connection between faithful preaching, faithful preaching and the kind of radical holiness in the lives of God's people that spills over in the way that we behave toward the weak and the poor and the marginalized and the way that we spend money and make money and give money and the way that we care for the, the, the widow and the orphan. So preaching that is easy on the ear and easy on the conscience that tells us, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. God is patient, God will forgive, that's his job. Preaching like that, Micah says, results in a cultural captivity of the church and leaves us liable to divine rebuke. Told you this wasn't your typical Mother's Day message. Oppression characterized... You see it? The way that Micah characterizes the injustice of his day, and it's, it still exists today. But it doesn't end there. I want you to notice number four as we wrap this up. Gospel hope delivered. Right in the middle of this extended word of rebuke and discipline, there is a word of gospel hope. Micah speaks of a deliverer prophesied. In verse 12, there's an image of God. The good shepherd who assembles his people like a flock in its pasture. And in verse 13, God is described now again as a conquering king who breaches the siege barriers that have surrounded them uh, by their enemies. And he, he goes up before them and comes out from among them to lead them. Micah is talking about the shepherd king. Not David, you might immediately think of when you hear that language, but David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole second half of this prophecy is primarily designed to speak. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Micah is saying, look, there's another way to live. There's another way to live. The oppression among you exposes you to judgment, to be sure, but rescue comes in Jesus Christ. He delivers his people. He sets the captive free. Bend the knee to King Jesus. And those who follow him have been delivered from sin and judgment, and one of the great marks of those who have followed him and been so delivered is care for the weak and the poor and the marginal and the widows and the orphans. They show integrity and compassion. They display generosity and hospitality in the midst of their prosperity. They trust the Lord for their daily bread. There is a strong connection between embracing the true gospel of Jesus Christ and being a good neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. We complicate things, don't we? Love God, love neighbor, and let your love for God, your, love, your supreme love for God guide and dictate how you love your neighbor. So we allow the gospel to transform the way that we relate to those around us, particularly the marginalized. However orthodox our doctrine 
if we don't show mercy to the poor, and if outsiders, people who don't look like us, who don't come from our comfortable community perhaps, are not welcome in our lives and in our church, we are functionally denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what are you living for? What are you living for? Really, what are you living for? I'm not asking, can you say the right words this morning about who Jesus is? Yes, I'm a Christian, and here's what the gospel... I'm asking, what are you living for? Have you perhaps forgotten somewhere along the way that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of things? And if all you want this morning is your best life now, will you please hear the warning? That is likely all you'll ever have. But come under the mastery of Jesus Christ, the shepherd king, and you get a whole new kind of life. You find pardon for sin. You're set free from the tyranny of living for power and money and reputation and all the idols of our day and age. You remember the words of Jesus, whoever loves his life loses it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel's finds it. Die to yourself. The way of Jesus is so crazy countercultural. For me to stand up here and tell you otherwise would make me an unfaithful preacher. So who and what are you living for? It may be that God's word to you and to me this morning is a call to repentance, a call to renew our commitment to living for others before ourselves, to leveraging the resources with which we've been blessed for the advancement of his kingdom. May the Lord give us grace to hear his word and bend the knee to the great shepherd king. If we could bow our heads for just a moment. It is not lost on me that you may be here and in this service simply because mama wanted you here. And it's very likely that this was not the sermon you were expecting to hear on Mother's Day 2022. Let me help connect the dots for you. The moms who are here this morning, the moms who for whatever reason can't be here this morning, those who are watching online, they are daily engaged in spiritual warfare. Because we live in a very dark world, not unlike the world in which Micah prophesied. And there are challenges at every turn. There's never been a time when it was more important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. And to view the world in which we live through God's eyes. It's so easy for us to love things and use people. 
And some will go so far as to use people to get more things. When God's economy says you use things to love people, to care for people, particularly the vulnerable. So Heavenly Father, it's my prayer today that you grip our hearts with the truths that we've unpacked here this morning, as difficult as it may be. Or today, I'm mindful that there may be a mom or moms here today who are deeply discouraged, just overwhelmed with thoughts that they're not good enough. They're not getting it done. <laughs> Lord, I pray that today they would know they are loved unconditionally by a gracious God. Help them, Lord, to trust you, to rely upon you as they carry out what you've laid before them. I pray that we as a church family would love you supremely, love the world around us the way that you would have us to. We love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.